Hello, and welcome to Surveyor Says, the podcast from the National Society of Professional Surveyors. Today, we bring you the next installment of Future Focus with your host, NSPS Executive Director Kurt Sumner. His guest today is our current NSPS Vice President, Amanda Allred. Kurt and Amanda recently sat down to chat about how she found surveying, a career working in several different and diverse states, and getting involved with NSPS. Thank you for joining us here on another Future Focus discussion on this episode of Surveyor Says. Hello, this is your host, Kurt Sumner. Thanks for joining us on Surveyor Says, the NSPS podcast series. I'm not as good as Tim Birch at talking about all the cool things we're doing, and I don't have that smooth radio voice that he has. But nonetheless, I um, always enjoy being able to do the podcast, and in particular, when I have people on that, that I know and are part of what we're doing, that's not to diminish our other guests who come on, but I think it's important for NSPS to have our members be able to hear from the, from the folks who are uh, in leadership and what they're thinking and where they came from and uh, so this series is a really great opportunity for us to be able to do this so people can listen anytime they wish. So with that in mind, my guest today is Amanda Allred. Welcome, Amanda. Hi, Kurt. Listeners will probably know that Amanda is the vice president now of NSPS, uh, having remotely been installed recently. Uh, that was an interesting uh, situation we had there and although I think it worked pretty well and who knows yeah. who knows how we might use it in the future or be forced to I don't know uh, but yeah it was really impressive actually yeah yeah it it went quite smoothly I thought and I, I do feel badly though because one of the great things about being in leadership in any organization but in NSPS because we all kind of know each other and you get to be friends with everybody from all over the country and being able to be in a meeting directly face to face with them. Uh, and in particular from the, from the view at the podium as, as part of the, of the leadership, um, it's just something special about it. And uh, I, I'm sorry that that hasn't been able to happen this in the spring, who knows what's going to happen in the fall. It's, so hard to tell this whole COVID thing where it's going or where it's not going, and and then all, everything yeah. else is going on in the country with upheaval. Um, I don't know. I maybe I'm more in tune to all that just because I'm in the old person age group that's supposed to sit around by the fire. But uh, no, I don't think so at all. I think um, younger people, and um, particularly in my age group and even younger, I guess I'm a genial. I'm not. I'm, <laughs> Kind of on the Generation X millennial, so I can pick which um, side of the fence. I'm oh, there you go. That works. You know, on the topic. Yeah. <laughs> so it's kind of convenient. Um, but yeah, just turning 40 was a, a neat thing. I, I don't know if I'm the youngest NSPS officer ever, but I'm probably certainly one of the youngest. And that's a trend that you kind of started seeing there with NSPS that mm -hmm. people are managing to get involved at a younger age and, um, and doing things a little bit differently, non-traditionally. And that doesn't necessarily mean better. It just means different. Right. Um, yeah. And yeah. I, that's that's a good point, actually. I, I'm not sure about the age thing. Um, I, I really don't know. But I would tend to think that it would be true. 
that you are certainly among the youngest, if not the youngest, uh, because yeah. by, the, by the time most of us have gotten through whatever path we've taken to be get into surveying and then spent time uh, working through an association or, or however we get to NSPS, you know, by the time all that happens and then you get into leadership position, because, see, I my presidency ended in the spring of 1998, right before I turned 50 years old. Oh, wow. Yeah. Cause yeah. I was, and I think, I think my path into surveying was a little more direct. Um, my dad is a realtor in New Mexico. He's a former state police officer and former um, investigator with the attorney general's office there. However, he didn't have a degree. He never um, finished college. And it always really bothered him the fact that he worked around attorneys all the time who were very well educated, that he didn't have an education. And um, he made it up a long way being an investigator there with the attorney general's office, but he was adamant that my sister and I go to college. And that was no question. And so I actually, the, the irony of all this is that um, my grandmother took me to Washington state to visit her twin sister. And we went and visited um, some of the dams on the Snake River and the Columbia. And I was floored. I thought, because being from New Mexico, you don't see that much water ever. And I was floored by these dams and by that, that um, the symbol of the core, the, the um, castle. And I thought, if I ever get a chance to work for these people, I don't know who they are, but if I could hang out on this river all the time, that would be heaven to me. And seeing those huge barges go through the locks, that was at the time where you could just walk up to the walk up to the structure was before 9-11. And um, they let me stand out there for hours and just watch them. And um, that's how I really got involved with surveying was because I, I wanted to go into engineering and I wanted to build dams. And then when you end up in school, you realize a lot of the dams have been built already. They're not really building new dams. And my dad was a huge advocate for me to become a land surveyor because he couldn't get surveys done. And um, I, I was going to ask you that. <laughs> when you said that about your dad, I was going to ask you if he thought, well, maybe she can do my forensics work for me. <laughs> <laughs> well, and by that time, he had retired from the attorney general's office, and he was working as a realtor in our hometown. He had come back out of Albuquerque. He wanted to get out of Albuquerque and spend time with us before we graduated, and he couldn't get a survey done. And he said, he told me, Amanda, if you do this, you, you will never lack for a job. And I got, to, I got to college and I had started in civil engineering and I figured out real quickly that the surveyors were more fun <laughs> for whatever reason. They were uh, kind of more down to earth and um, they, they did a lot of fun. Jim Riley, I mean, I'll, you got to say Jim Riley at NMSU. And um, within a semester, I had changed my degree course and my, my Dr. King there in Mexico State was not happy that I left the civil program, but um, I think as far as job opportunities, I have not regretted. I have never had a, I have never had the unfortunate, op, the unfortunate circumstance to be out of a job, and especially in strange times, that is so unique to say. Yeah, Jim Riley has a, a really big spot in my heart. Um, I don't know if you were aware of this, but the year I began this job, on a temporary basis, by the way. Um, Jim was the incoming then ACSM president. 
and I came in in July, maybe June or July, when there was an immediate opening, and he had kind of just started his presidency as well. And so the two of us really got saddled with trying to figure out how to get the organization back on its feet because there wasn't any money. Oh, wow. And wow. so we, I don't know that, I don't know if we talked every day, but <laughs> pretty darn close to it. And then he was instrumental too, because we were very fortunate that state society stepped up. And, and I have to say, WestFed was a big, big part of that. Uh, they stepped up faster than anybody um, to, to say, hey, we got to do something here. And uh, so he and I went through a lot together and, and uh, I don't get to talk to him much anymore, but uh, he's, <laughs> yeah. still, he's still in my heart. That's for sure. Yeah, Jim Riley and Steve Frank and um, Earl Burkholder down there, they've all done a wonderful job in my era of, um, of continuing the education down there. And I, um, so I went to NMSU in um, the fall of 1997 and um, started out in civil engineering, but changed by January. I was in the surveying engineering program. And um, I had a friend who had an internship in Alaska, um, Tom Maestas. I don't know if you know him at all. He's a longtime, longtime BLM guy there in New Mexico. He um, he was putting on the PLSS class for um, for the university. He spent a lot of years um, devoting his personal time to doing that. And um, he had the the BLM program there, where you could go to you know you applied and you could go to a state. And work for the summer and so i since the time i was little i wanted to go to alaska it was either alaska or new york city for me there was no in between and um i'm glad alaska worked out no offense to new york city but i think um i think it really really worked out well so i applied for an internship there and i didn't get it and i was pretty devastated because um i i've i've gotten most things i've applied for in my life and um and i've kind of um spoiled that way a little bit. So when I didn't get it, I was a little bit in shock. So I got a job there locally um, with some of my cohorts there in the program. They had they had a huge staking out job at, on I-25. Um, and we had just, the, the owner of the, the office had just bought Trimble units and they were running about $100,000 for an RTK unit. And, you know, they were on the pole with the backpack and all those things were probably 4,800 and 5700 era in there and um so i was working every day in 110 degree heat in las cruces new mexico staking out um bridge details and alignments for the interchange and to be honest with you i didn't know what i was doing i i ran the instrument and i i did what they told me to do but it was it was pretty overwhelming and um and it was it was a great experience though to be working around a construction crew but at the end of the summer, when they needed help in Alaska, when all their interns went back to school, um, my name came up and they called me in August. And I, I could not say no because it was my dream. And my poor dad had a heart attack because he just knew if I went to Alaska, I wasn't coming back and I wouldn't finish college. And those were the two things, those were his worst fears in life, you know, that you'd lose your daughter to Alaska and she wouldn't finish her education. <laughs> So I had to promise him that I would finish my education. I didn't promise him that I'd come back, but I promised him that I'd finish my education. <laughs> and six years later, I kept that promise. So, so when you were there, um, 
were you doing coursework and working at the same time or? Yeah, initially it started out, I took a semester off and um, it worked out as I got into a co-op program and, um, and I actually got college credit for, for going up there and doing that. And the BLM, I don't know if they still do it or not, but they had a program where they would help pay for your education. And um, so that first, that first fall that I was there, we were working in Southeast Alaska um, around Sitka, Juneau, on doing some state land claims as well as um, native well, allotments. And there's kind of a misnomer um, in the surveying world that once you go past the, the Mississippi that it's all PLSS after that and all the PLSS is the same. And if you're licensed in one state, then it's all the same, you know? And that is so untrue, especially when you get to Alaska, as you well know. I know you've spent quite a bit of time there as well. And when you get into native allotments, when you get into the way they broke down sections, when you get into the way they monumented things, when you get into the way they surveyed it, because they're only surveying stuff that was that is selected for patent, it's a totally different world. So. Yeah, one of the other interesting things that it should have been um, obvious, but for some reason it wasn't to me, but we were doing some work through NSPS a few years ago. Uh, and one of the things that was being talked about was the future laying out of, of the system in Alaska. And, you know, we think about the, the lower 48 where, like you said, hey, it's just a bunch of squares and rectangles, you know. Um, but to learn that a lot of that wilderness, for lack of a better term, that may be even opening up over time, apparently nothing's ever been did, actually done there on the ground before. Right. And um, I, I had a great opportunity to not only work in the field in the summertime, because they, at the BLM, they work from about May, going in until it really starts getting cold. And you can string it out till maybe September, October, depending on where you're working. Um, I actually had the opportunity after the first year there that I was given um, a job at the office, at the um, the downtown office there in native land claims. And I had the opportunity to start working for Dominica Van Coten now, and who is the chief cadastral surveyor, is that correct? I think that's the right title, yeah. Yeah, for the BLM now. I think she's the first woman to have that position. And um, I was really fortunate that I got to work with her there. And um, she taught me a lot. And um, one, of the, one of the neat things that I learned there one of my responsibilities was to help with the native land selections. And so you have, I don't know how many millions of acres Alaska is, I'm embarrassing myself not knowing, but um, most of it is unsurveyed and most of the state selections. So when Alaska became a state, they agreed, the federal government agreed to give so much land to the state of Alaska. And they also gave 160 acres to each native Alaskan at that time. That has mo mostly not been surveyed and not been deeded. And so you're talking about just surveying pieces still for natives that are probably mostly deceased. And um, so it was a huge, a huge thing. They're also surveying lands for, for what they call um, native corporations now. They changed the status of, it went from reservations to native corporations. And so you have village corporations and you have an overall regional corporation where they're selecting land. And so 
in the Native Land Claims Division, we were working with them to help get their first selections done. And then if that couldn't happen, to help them get other areas. But these are real estate people. Real estate people need surveyors. And so I got, <laughs> I got put over there and I, it worked out really well because I very quickly learned working for the federal government, at least not in the summer in Alaska, that if you have time to work on some of your schoolwork, that is highly encouraged. And so it was a great opportunity there at the BLM. So you continued your schoolwork through New Mexico State? No, actually, um, at that time, I, um, I went, I, I returned for one summer, one semester in, that would have been 1998, back to New Mexico State. And that summer, I got another, I got the internship again back with the BLM. They tried me out and they invited me back. And so then I went ahead and moved to Alaska and I enrolled at the University of Alaska at Anchorage because I kept my promise to my dad that I would continue my education. And they have a great geomatics program there at the University of Alaska at Anchorage. And it worked out really well because I moved downtown. I could walk to the federal building and then I could drive over to the, over to the university. And um, they have a great like internal system where you go in one building and you don't have to walk outside <laughs> again. And um, so I got, I really got a diverse education and I ended up getting an associate's degree there in geomatics from the University of Alaska at Anchorage. So when, when it, for whatever reason, when it came time to go come back to New Mexico, um, did you do that for a private sector job or were you still doing something with BLM? Actually, it worked out with the BLM again. I, um, my grandfather had passed away in about March and um, I flew home from Anchorage and it was 80 to 90 degrees in Phoenix and it was a beautiful 70, you know, where my hometown is in Glenwood, New Mexico. And, um, and I got back on the plane and um, it was snowing in Seattle when I came through Seattle. And anybody that knows the Pacific Northwest knows if it's snowing in Seattle, that ain't a good thing. And so it snowed, started snowing in Seattle and I got on the plane and I landed in Anchorage about 2 a.m. and went to bed. And I got up the next morning and there was six feet of snow outside. Oh, wow. And I said, this desert girl's gotta go home. <laughs> <laughs> Not long after that, I decided to go back and um, and I had already gotten my associates in Alaska and um, it worked out that I applied for a for an internship again. Actually, no, it was a permanent position there with the BLM in Santa Fe that summer. And I got to work with Tom Iestas and some other great surveyors um, there at the New Mexico office. And we were doing boundary work on Alamo Navajo reservations. And so it was it was a great time in life, you know, to be a surveyor. And um, so that's how it started. And then I got back into school at New Mexico State. So then when you, you obviously already had a lot of experience when you got out of school. I did. Were, did and that, that allow so, you to look, to go directly for the exam? Well, I guess if you graduate New Mexico State, you could go for the, for the fundamentals exam right away. Right. Um, Dr. Frank um, at that time was the head of the program and he absolutely was adamant that everybody take the LSIT before you left. So that semester before I graduated, I took the LSIT and I passed and um, I already had about six years worth of experience. Um, and I almost, I was convinced when I left Alaska, I wasn't going to graduate though, because I had such a hard time with the mathematics. I, this is, this might shock a lot of people, but I am not a mathematical type person. I do not have a mathematical mind. And English always came easy to me, but mathematics never did. 
And I, um, I had the experience in some small schools in New Mexico where we didn't have great math teachers. And I think that's kind of true across the board, but I had a good one and she taught me some fundamentals. And so the reason, not only because I traveled a lot, that it took me six years to finish my bachelor's was because I had to start at basic algebra when I went to college. And, and that's embarrassing, you know, but I was so determined. I loved jams. I, I didn't care. I was going to be an engineer of some sort. It was going to happen. And I didn't know that that was kind of embarrassing because it just was me. I did wasn't good at math. And so I started at basic algebra. I was so bad at math. I couldn't even start at college algebra or trigonometry. <laughs> and you have kids that um, are starting into college at the same age that are going straight into calculus. And so they have, they have up on me at the very beginning, but I was determined not to quit. And I lucked out. I, I made it through calculus too, but for a bachelor's in engineering at New Mexico State, you either had to have Calc 3 or some equivalent. And I read the or some equivalent real carefully because I skated by Calc 2 with the, by the hair of my chinny chin chin. <laughs> and um, there was a differential equations equivalent and so I would highly encourage people that are having difficulty with the math, that there are alternatives to get through this. And if you talk to your cohorts at college, they can have good tips for you. Because when you get into the higher calculus, you might have teachers where English is not their first language and it's incredibly difficult to learn. And so I lucked out in my differential equations class that I got an engineer who also taught at New Mexico Tech. He would come down to New Mexico State um, a couple times a week and teach the differential equations course. When he walked in, I knew it was going to be okay because he walked in and he was 6'2". He looked like a football player and he was wearing a SpongeBob shirt. <laughs> and I thought, that is going to work out. <laughs> I think I can understand him. And that was the first class I got an A in. And, um, and to finish that way really boosted my confidence. But um, so I would really encourage young people to think outside the box and even take those math classes at community colleges because community colleges have great smaller smaller classrooms where you can get more attention. I will attest to that too because I did the, I did the the two year school my the two year school I went to was was connected to Virginia Tech so everything transferred but I did all of those all of those math courses the cal calculus everything there and it was a, just a whole indifferent environment obviously but it was much more conducive to learning and i think it was more conducive to having a good relationship with the instructor because you were a, a relatively small group of people they were dealing with rather than hundreds of people over time so right. I, 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 would, I would agree with your thought on that for sure so did you get connected to the New Mexico Society while you were at school, perhaps, I guess? Or how'd that work out? No, I, I didn't because, to be honest with you, I spent all my time trying to get through the math just so I could take a surveying course because you couldn't get into um, surveying 222 until you had you were enrolled in, um, it, I can't remember if college algebra or trig came first, but you, you had to be right on the cusp of getting into calculus. So I had to wait quite a while and, um, and I, it was fine. I got all my electives done and I got a lot of stuff done. Um, but, um, but no, um, I, 
Where were we at, Kurt? We were talking about your connection to New Mexico society. Yes, and so there was a very active student chapter. And, um, and those guys were always trying to get me in there and participate with them. But um, I, I honestly, um, my dad, my dad was really hard on his girls. He has five daughters. And so um, when I was at college, I wasn't really interested in hanging out with a bunch of men all the time. I was interested in getting through my math classes. And so I didn't participate in the, in the um, student chapter, unfortunately. Um, and down the road, one of the friends there said, said Amanda at a surveying conference later on, he said, man, I, you're really a lot of fun. He was like, I didn't realize you were a lot of fun. You never hung out with us in college. And I was like, it's because I was tired of men. I, <laughs> I don't need to hang out with you all the time. I, that's all I do is I work with men and I don't need to socialize with you all. So um, the, the lack of diversity, I think, is, is, a, is a timely topic as well. Um, but I was fortunate enough that Dr. Frank um, and Dr. Riley had the vision to bring Wendy Lathrop to New Mexico State. And so I never questioned that a woman could be a surveyor. I never questioned that a woman could be a surveyor. And I never questioned that a woman could be a respected surveyor. And um, she taught me a lot about that. And she also taught me not to fraternize too much. Not that I didn't later on, but for a woman in this industry, you have to keep things very separated. And um, my boss here at the Army has also taught me that as well, that if, um, not to say you can't go out for drinks with people and have a good time, but there's, there's a line there when you're the only woman in the room sometimes that, that you can't cross too much, you know, and you can't be too friendly. And, um, and that, that's unfortunate, but I think it's changing a lot too. Um, so that's where, that's where that kind of started. It was after, it was after college. Yeah. Wendy was actually the NSPS president right before me. Great. Yeah, she's such a fantastic example of, um, of what women can do and what women can be. Yeah, and her, so, passion, um, her passion for everything related to FEMA and flood and all that is just phenomenal. Yeah, and crazy knowledgeable on, on, on a fantastic, important topic. Absolutely. And, um, so I, I got involved after college. I think I had graduated and I got a job with a, with a surveyor that worked in Catron County primarily. And he and I, um, we never met a lot. It was really the beginning of, of, of distance working with somebody and it was really great. He was, he was a fantastic example and a great mentor, Don Edgington. He was a PE as well and he was a veteran. And I was, I'm talking like he's passed away. He's not, he's still surveying in West Texas and Eastern New Mexico, but I was lonely. I went from having colleagues all around me at the BLM to colleagues all around me at the university. And I had one contact at that point and I was lonely for surveyors. <laughs> I know that might sound a bit bizarre, but you know, the actual conversations with people I was lonely for. And so I started going to the state um, the state meetings, and I joined in, in MPS, and then actually I had the opportunity to sit on the, in on a board meeting. One of the guys couldn't make it for the Southern Rio Grande chapter, and they were having a meeting in Las Cruces, and he said, Amanda, go for me, and I, it was a two-hour drive, but I was like, what the heck? I was in the, I was in the business of just saying yes all the time at that point to see where it took me, so I said yes, and I went down there, and I sat in on one board meeting, and then I, it's, it seems like I woke up 
on the board of NSPS now, all these years <laughs> later. But I did, um, since I had so much experience, I ended up getting my license at, I, I think I graduated from college at 24. I got my LSIT then, and I was licensed at 26. And um, one, of, <laughs> one of the major problems was people didn't take me seriously. So, and um, I would do surveys with my dad so I was working for this other surveyor at the time, still as an LSIT, and we would go survey people's property because he was a realtor, and this worked out real good because I finally graduated six years later. But we would go survey property. And so you have a 24-year-old, 24-year-old me standing there with my 50-something-year-old father, and um, they would never look at me. They wouldn't look at me as a surveyor. And um, they would ask him questions and they'd say, what about this, this, and that? And he would look at them and he would say, I don't know. You need to ask her. She's the surveyor. <laughs> and they would look at me and they would look back at him and they would continue their question with him. And I would get so offended because I had spent my whole, I had spent six years doing this and they only want to talk to my dad. Yeah. And um, in hindsight later, I taken advantage of this and just gotten the work done and let him BS with people. But at the time, and it's still very offensive when people look at you and don't believe you could be a surveyor. Yeah. And, and that that's disheartening. And, um, and I've come to figure out later in life that I'm not alone with that, even um, gender, gender or, um, or um, minority wise, as far as being a Hispanic as well. And I have a good friend at the core and um, he's from El Paso and I won't say his name just to <laughs> not embarrass him or anything, but we have a lot in common because he's from El Paso and I give him a hard time about that um, because that's where the miners are at and the Aggies hate the miners. And so, <laughs> but we have a lot in common because we're both from the same neck of the woods. And so yeah. he has a very similar pro problem. This man went to the, um, the Air Force Academy graduated with an engineering degree. He continued on with the Air Force and um, has a master's in structural engineering from the University of Colorado at Boulder. And when he shows up on a project, the first thing they say to him is, you're an engineer? And <laughs> he told me a great one-liner when I, I finally started using it too. And he goes, I know, it shocked me too. <laughs> He's like, I know how you feel. I look in the mirror and I, I don't know what happened. I think I got lost. <laughs> and um, so I really I've learned a lot from my peers about how to deal with such things, you know, that when yeah. they just are and dumbfounded that I'm I'm a surveyor. <laughs> and I'm intrigued with your with your relationship there with with the core. And you and I've talked about this off air and I've had a lot of experiences not working for the core directly, but working for the core as a contractor um, in a lot of different ways. And I mentioned to you that. I worked in a, a an army ammunition plant that the Corps was under con, over had control over the infrastructure and got to see some nice explosions there and uh, it was a, sort of a interesting time but also got to do a lot of uh, back in the old days where you actually did river cross sections in a boat uh, so I, I've always enjoyed the Corps and had a great respect for them and so I was in, intrigued about the fact that you're there and. Uh, are you guys working on particular projects or particular types of work or how does it, oh. what are you doing? 
the great thing about the Corps of Engineers, especially in Walla Walla, and I do want to discount this real quick. I got to say this to cover the attorneys. It's, these are all my personal feelings. I'm not here representing the Corps of Engineers on any as any official, but um, I we work on a variety of projects. And so I can wake up in the morning and I could be doing boundary stuff. I could be doing hydrographic stuff. I could be doing flooding stuff. I could be doing structural stuff at the at the dams. And, and you never know. Um, primarily, we at the Walla Walla District, there's only three of us there in the geomatics office. And so we contract most of our work out. But um, we do pick up work that's emergency in nature and that needs handling quickly. That um, internally, we can do work cheaper um, than contracting it out and quicker. And so we do have the opportunity to do stuff ourselves as well. And it's it's been... It's been like going home for me. Um, so you finally met, you finally made it back to the lakes, back to the dam. Oh my gosh! Yeah, and it's so <laughs> ironic because of all places, I ended up in Washington State, um, where my grandmother bought me and showed me those dams when I was 16 years old. And um, I think it was a compromise between my husband and I, who's um, spent the majority of his life in Alaska, and um, me being a New Mexican. I I married an Alaskan, my second marriage, and um, who lived in Fairbanks. <laughs> and I already told you my story about snow, and but um, it really the darkness bothered me. And so we compromised and ended up in Washington State. And there was a job opening with the Corps of Engineers in Walla Walla. And it, and and to be honest with you, it's, it's been my dream job. Um, That's cool. Like I mentioned, when when we wake up in the morning, there could be an emergency with a fish ladder. There could be an emergency with some structure failing. We're working on 60 year old structures that are potentially failing, you know, and the dam deformation work is really important. The monitoring that we get that right. And the Walla Walla district has set up the monitoring program for safety on these structures for years since they were built. We have data on these structures. We can see how they're moving and, um, and it depends on the time of year that you take the surveys. It depends on how much water is going through that structure that you take the surveys. It depends on the heat. And it's it's so detailed and so overwhelming that the challenges of that are just fascinating for me because that can happen in one minute. And the next minute, a park ranger can call me and say, I have a monument here and there's some encroachment possibility. Can you help me out with this? And I always have to defer to them and tell them, err on the side that it's not an encroachment. You know, we, we'll work with it if it is, but let's please call it a potential encroachment and err on the side that people aren't breaking the law. And, um, and it is, it, um, I, I would encourage people that are out of work or looking for a change in atmosphere to look at the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers. There's job opportunities throughout the world. And I get, I get the opportunity to travel um, to travel all over the world, um, but that's on a voluntary basis because I'm still I'm still a citizen, a citizen employee, which means I'm not I'm not technically um, enlisted. And the Corps has a I, I think it's the in 1775 was when the United States Army Corps of Engineers was created, and it was to get the private sector involved in helping the Army build the projects they couldn't do alone with themselves. And all of our commanders come mostly out of West Point. These are West Point graduates with engineering degrees. And you bring civilians into that 
who are hopefully the top of top of the line civilians um, come in as engineers and surveyors to work with them. And it's kind of a clash, but I tell you, it matches my personality just fine because <laughs> they are very direct. They are very question orientated and they are very get the job done. They don't want to hear the excuses of why it's not happening. And you get brought before the board if your job's not getting done. And so, like I said, it, it suits my personality just fine. And I wish I'd found it um, 20 years ago, but it took me working for the DOT. It took me owning my own business. It took me working for the Bureau of Land Management. It, it took all of that for me to find my place home. And I would encourage people of a, um, to also expand their, their background because um, the years of working for one group are over. You know, it, it mortified my dad every time I quit a job and work somewhere else. So I usually I just didn't tell him. And then I'd be like, oh yeah, I'm working for uh, now. And he would be like, oh my gosh, would you just stick with something? But the diversity that you can get in serving is incredible. And yeah. in hindsight, I would have liked to have also worked for NOAA on a hydrographic vessel because the hydrographic work we do for the Corps of Engineers is, it's incredible. We still get people in boats and we still send them across rivers because the snake is so, it's such a precarious, dangerous river that all those things need to still be done with the, the data by hand like that almost. Yeah, well, I, I know we don't have a lot of time left. Uh, we try to keep these things within some kind of reason, but what I want to say is you and I have not talked an awful lot today about NSPS. And, and that was by design because I wanted our audience to get to know Amanda Allred. And the fact that Amanda Allred is our vice president is a really cool and great thing for NSPS. And it's going to have a big impact moving forward as well. But it, it was important for me for our listeners to get to know Amanda Allred, the person, the surveyor. And so I've purposely stayed on that track today just because I wanted to have that experience for people to be able to, to get to know you. Well, thank you, Kurt. I appreciate that a lot. And I look forward to having another conversation with you. Um, maybe we can talk NSPS and mining claims a little bit. Um, yeah, that'll be fun. I worked for a lot of years in the mining industry. And when I had my own business in New Mexico, doing a lot of work for Phelps Dodge and later on for Freeport McMoran. And I made some great relationships. And um, my husband, who's also one of the last mineral surveyors, I keep trying to get him on this podcast and we'll, we'll make it happen eventually. Yeah, but, we'll get it done. That's a huge passion of mine is, is the mineral industry. And the, um, I think that's where the get kids into survey her, her father was actually in the mining claims. Yes, in, that's in, correct. Yeah. In Africa. Is that in, correct? In, or it, worldwide? in uh, yeah, the, they live in uh, England, I think. Right. But his right. work was, was much more broad than that, I think. Yeah. And that's one of the major areas that not a lot of surveyors mainly work in probably, and it doesn't get a lot of exposure, but yeah, as far as the NSPS stuff is going, I'm I'm glad you all have me. I'm I sometimes I cringe every time I hold my hand up and I can see you all going. <laughs> but <laughs> I'm sorry, it's just my nature. We were all taught ask the questions, so um, I'm glad that um, these 
these relationships are getting expanded and um, that the young surveyors are getting so involved with the with the NSPS right now that it's Absolutely. just it's it's a neat time to be involved with the group. It certainly is. Well, thanks for being with me today, and we will certainly do this again and go down a different track. You bet. Thank you, Kurt. Thanks. Listening to Future Focus with your host Kurt Sumner and guest NSPS Vice President Amanda Allred here on the Surveyor Says Podcast. Thanks to Kurt and Amanda for another great episode and offering the listeners a glimpse into those who choose to help lead our organization. More great episodes are on the way, including more governmental topics with Point of Order, more Table A Talk with Gary Kent, and several shows covering CST and Trigstar programs offered by NSPS. So, remember to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, iHeartRadio, Spotify, as well as our podcast host, Podbean. And watch our website, nsps.us.com, for information on future episodes. And remember, it's a great day to be a surveyor. Surveyor.